What's up, church? How are you guys doing today? As Pastor Eddie mentioned, my name is Joey. I'm the student ministry director here at Grace. And my wife has heard this like a thousand times, but Hebrews is literally my favorite book of the Bible. Because at the end of the day, Hebrews, the entire book, can be summed up in three awesome, amazing words. Jesus is greater. Amen. And because this entire book can be summed up by those three words, the author of the book has to show that over and over and over again. At the very beginning, he establishes that he is greater than the angels. The next few chapters walk through the idea that he is the greater high priest of the order of Melchizedek. He's the priest and the king. And then chapters 8, 9, and 10 talk about the new things that get established because of the shedding of Jesus' blood. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Tim talked about how the shedding of Jesus' blood set aside the old covenant and established a new one. Chapter 9, Pastor Adrian talked about how the shedding of Jesus' blood actually helps us to enter into a new sanctuary. And chapter 10, as Dom just said, talks about the sacrifice of Jesus, but that's not it. You see, as I, as I was prepping and as I was reading and I was getting ready for today, it was crazy because I couldn't help but think of my absolute all-time favorite car. Now, back there you see a beautiful red Corvette or as Prince would say, a little red Corvette, right? It is fast, has amazing handling. You could literally get away from anything, but if you guys are looking at me right now, you're looking at me and you're saying, Joey, you are a big dude. <laughs> and there is absolutely no way you can fit into that car and you would be right. Which is why it's not my favorite car, right? Next, we see a very spacious, right, go anywhere, tow anything, Ford F-350. It's a bit of a gas guzzler, though. And while it can take you anywhere and it can tow anything, it's also still not my favorite car. This is my favorite car. <laughs> this is Barney. I want to introduce you to. Right, and it's not my favorite car to all you car people because of the speed or the handling. It's not my favorite car because it can go anywhere or tow anything. It's not my favorite car because it's the first car that I bought out of college. And it's not my favorite car because uh, it's the car I took my wife out on our first date in. But this is actually the car in which my life was changed. It's the car in which the way I saw the world was so radically altered. And I know I have to explain. See, early on in my life, I wasn't a believer. Then I started coming to church. I would wake up on Sundays. I would get into that car right there. I would drive to that parking lot, sit in these seats, raise my hands and sing songs and worship. I would listen to services and then I would walk out those doors through that parking lot to that car. And I would live 
the same way I did before. I lived in sin. I was broken. But thank God, thank God he opened my eyes because I didn't understand how wrong that was. You see, I didn't take my sin seriously, so I wasn't taking the cross seriously, the sacrifice of Jesus seriously. And then one day in that car, driving on the loop, I didn't get hit by anything. It was just, it hit me like a ton of bricks. The weight of my sin. You see, I understood that my sin against a holy and righteous God separated me from him. I understood the weight and the cost of the cross and the significance of the sacrifice of Jesus. And I had to pull over because I was undone. I couldn't stop weeping and crying because of that simple truth. And it was that day that I repented and I believed. It was that day I submitted to Christ. It was that day my life was changed in that car. You see, that change changed the way that I approached God the Father. It changed the way that I approached my fellow believers and even non-believers. It changed the way that I lived in the midst of a trial. And all of those truths are truths that the author of Hebrews walks through to the people that he's writing to. Like I said, he's established these things that have to get set aside by the shedding of Jesus' blood. And the very first thing he does in chapter 10 is he makes that case for the sacrificial system. Now we're going to all come back to this life-changing moment because before then I was somebody very different than I am now. Thank God for that. But the people that he's writing to in this church, there's both of those people. There's the people that honored God with their lips. There's the people that knew God but didn't know God. They knew the answers. They knew what to say, but they didn't live it. And then there's the people who in the face of persecution were living and living obediently. And he has messages for both of them here. But to get to that part, he has to establish that Christ's blood set aside the sacrificial system to make us right before God. In Hebrews 10, verses 5 and 6, it says this. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. So that brings us to the question, like if God didn't want those sacrifices, what did he want? And Jesus hints at that a few verses later when he says, he added, behold, I have come to do your will. God wants obedience. He wants us to do what we're called to do, just like Jesus did. And he does away with the first. He gets rid of that system to establish the second. That's hinting at that new covenant Pastor Tim talked about in chapter 8. And it says this in Hebrews 10. It says, and by that, by this sacrifice, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And these are three words we can't miss, church, once and for all. Or four words, sorry, I can't count. These four words are huge. This once and for all sacrifice, if we 
believe in him, it redeems us. It restores us. It brings us back into a relationship with God. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, for our sake, for us, he with a capital H is God. God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. We get made right before God through the blood of Christ. And it's once and for all. And this sets up a life-changing thing because now it should change the way that we live if we have been broken by our sin and we repent and we believe in the sacrifice of Christ. It changes the way we live because we are made right before God. We see that play out in Hebrews 10, 19. Now, it starts off with the word, therefore. And anytime you see that word, that's kind of the author saying, this is us wrapping up that thought train, right? Christ is greater. He's the greater high priest. His sacrifice has paid the price for our sin. Therefore, we should do this. And here in chapter 10, verse 19, it says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. My first point for you guys today is this. Because of the once and for all sacrifice of Christ, I can approach the Father with confidence. Because of the once and for all sacrifice of Christ, I can approach the Father with confidence. As we've seen, the blood of Christ has restored us back to God. And it gives us a confidence. And I did a word study on this word confidence because it pops up a few times. And it's, it's an awesome word because in the Greek, it's not just like, hey, what's up? I'm awesome because I'm confident, right? No. It translates to a boldness in the face of an intimidating situation in the face of a scary situation, and I'm not talking about Halloween. To the Hebrew people, approaching God was terrifying. Approaching God was a scary thing because since they were under those sacrifices of animals, those sacrifices that could never make them clean, could never forgive their sins eternally, what you saw was God's holiness and the Hebrew people's sin, they didn't mix. So if you approached God the Father or you went near his, uh, the Holy of Holies, you would die. So this is radical for them. They weren't able to do that before, and it hints back to what we learned in chapter 9. But this confidence in the face of a scary situation is huge. Because by the blood of Christ, we can approach God the Father in prayer. We can lean on him and rest on his promises in any time, any situation, any place, because we have been redeemed by our high priest who is seated right next to him in eternity. He's seated right next to God the Father. And that gets all explained in the next few verses. In verses 20 to 22, it says this, 
by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, through the flesh of Jesus, we can enter in to the curtain of the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwells. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with water. We have been forgiven. We have been redeemed and restored. And now we can approach God by the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. The last verse says, let us hold fast to this confession without wavering because he who promised, God who promised this is faithful. Because our hearts have been cleansed, because our bodies were washed clean, we are now the sons and daughters of God, which is what it says in Ephesians 1. We, it's not based on our work, therefore we can be 100% sure because the minute that Jesus let his body go on the cross, that he, he gave his spirit to God, he said, it is finished. It's done. Not, I'll see you next week. Not, come back in six months and we'll do this again. Not, we'll do this next year. It's done. It's finished forever. So we can have confidence approaching God because we have been restored. Now, for some of you guys, that sounds awesome and that sounds amazing, and it is. But if you're anything like me, you would be totally content to lock yourself away from people and just be with God by yourself. But that's not it. That's not where Hebrews and the author of Hebrews ends the story because these Christians were being persecuted. People were going to kill them simply for their faith. And because we can approach the Father, we are united to each other in fellowship and worship. And that's my second point for you guys today. Because I am united to the Father by the once and for all sacrifice of Christ, I can unite with others in fellowship and in worship to endure any trial. Now, that's an awesome thing. We have each other to lean on to get us through this situ any situation and any circumstance. And there's divine purpose in it. It's not just said because it's like, yo, stronger together, right? Like that's not what it means. There's divine purpose in it. In John chapter 10, Jesus prayed to God for unity. And he said that if we are one, it says, I am in them and you are in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This fellowship, this unity, this accountability between believers, it's divinely inspired because it points others back to God also. We get to be the hands and feet like Pastor Eddie just said. And it's played out in the next few verses. Chapter 10, verse 24 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. Let us be able to stir one another, each other. It works both ways. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Now in this verse, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, right? 
They're not talking about people who aren't coming to church because they don't like that the pastor talks about politics or doesn't like that, uh, you know, you may or may not get a virus, right? Like, that's not what they're saying here. Like I said, don't neglect to meet together because if you meet together, you could die. If you met together, you'd go to jail. If you gathered together in worship, just like we are now, you, you could literally be killed for it. And we see this. We're seeing this in places like China. We're seeing this in the Middle East, right? But encourage one another. Come together and encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, that's huge, church. That whole thing, not neglecting to meet together, is huge. I've got to ask you the question. There's many of us that aren't coming to church for one reason or another, and I understand that this pandemic looks very different for everybody. I get that. But if your comfort is on the line and you're not coming, you're a lot like me before the whole car thing. Right? If that would have happened, if that was on the line for me, I would have said, hard pass, guys. I'm out. I'm not going to be there. But imagine, church, imagine if your life was on the line. Would you still gather corporately in worship? Would you still get together with your friends and pray for each other? That's a thought that many of us have never had to actually process. Would you still worship? Like I said, if it was me before, I don't know. I probably wouldn't. If you ask me that question now, it's a completely different answer. It's absolutely yes. And so the Hebrew people that he's writing to here, there was two people within that church. He's writing right here to the people that are living it, that are obedient. Go out, do what you got to do, encourage each other to good things and love each other and be by each other's side. But the flip side of that is the other end of the spectrum. It's completely neglecting to meet together. The people who say, no, I don't want anything to do with fellowship. I don't want anything to do with worship. And the warning that comes next is not something that we should take lightly. It says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Remember, these are the people that knew God but didn't know God. These are the people who confessed with their lips but didn't honor God with their hearts and with their lives, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. That sacrifice, that awesome once and for all sacrifice, it doesn't apply to you anymore. It's not for you because you haven't really entered into it. But all that remains is a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume God's adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law This is the thing that we're doing away with, right? Would die on the basis of three witnesses. That's Old Testament stuff. That's what you saw in books like Leviticus early on. How much worse would the punishment be if you trampled underfoot the Son of God? How much worse would it be for you if you died there? How much worse would it be for you if you said, Jesus, your sacrifice is not good enough for me? That's eternal death. That's eternal separation. For we know, verse 30, 
Him who said, vengeance is mine and I will repay and again the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's a scary thought, church. To be one of those people sitting here, just like I was, saying, yes, I'm a believer. And then walking out those doors and living like everybody else, looking like the rest of the world. Not being obedient, not living out the heart part. But true believers, people who've put their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus, people who have been changed can face anything, anything with God and with each other. I think of the season that my family has gone through recently. If not for God, and if not for our fellow believers, we wouldn't have gotten through it. We wouldn't have gotten through it without the people coming alongside us to pray for us, to remind us that we aren't alone. To stand by our side through the good news and the bad. For the people who covered for us when we couldn't make it to small group, or the people who opened their homes for us, for the people who offered to take care of our son or give him a ride so that he could maintain some sense of normalcy in the middle of this crazy season. For the people who brought us food when we couldn't cook. And you see the believers that were being written to here in the middle of this persecution, in the middle of this trial, in the middle of these seasons, the author knew that they had two things, two things that they could totally lean on, and that was God and his promises, and that was each other. And we see that in the last few verses we're going to read through today. It says, but recall, in verse 32, the former days when after coming to faith, after being enlightened, you endured struggles and sufferings. Troubles are going to come. Life is going to happen. That's a promise. Stuff is going to get thrown at you that you never saw coming, but God is going to use that to shape you into who he needs you to be, and you have to be obedient through it all with each other and with him. You endured struggles and sufferings, sometimes even being exposed publicly to reproach and affliction. You were persecuted in the streets because you were believers. Sometimes even being partners with those people who were so treated, you were coming alongside them and helping them. For you had compassion on those in prison. You took care of them. You even joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew you yourselves had a greater possession and an abiding one. Because we have God and we have each other, we can make it through 
any season if we stay together. And church, I got to tell you, without us being together, there's no way we would have made it through that season. There's absolutely not. But we can hold on to God's truth because like the author just said, we know we have a greater possession in eternity. We have a greater possession that unites us to God because we have been redeemed and restored back to him because we've been forgiven of our sins so we can approach him. We have a greater possession that unites us to each other to walk alongside each other and pray for each other and take care of each other's needs and live out those good works that he has called us into. We have a greater possession to focus on in the face of any season or trial or storm because we know one day there will be no more suffering. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more pain. There will be no more tears because we will be in eternity with God. We have a greater possession purchased by the blood that was shed on that cross. We have Jesus, our great King and High Priest, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for those who believe in Him. Church, we have Jesus, and that is the only thing that we need. Let's pray. Father, we come before you once again to thank you. To thank you for your grace. To thank you for your mercy. And to thank you for the perfect life of your son Jesus, the life that ended at that cross on Calvary, Lord, where his blood was shed so that we can come together with you and approach you in prayer. Father, to endure any trial or storm together. Lord, we are so thankful to be able to gather together in your name, to worship you and lift your name on high, to sing your praises, Father, because you are our provider. You are our protector, Lord. And it is through your peace, the peace that we get from you, Lord, that we can make it through anything. God, we love you. We worship you. We praise you. And it is in your son's most precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. Love you, church.